0: The overriding idea or principle on 1 Corinthians is that all of our life is to be consecrated to God, meaning that that our life is to be in Christ. And because our life is in Christ, we now have a different way of operating in the world. We should look different, we should act different, we should be different in the way we operate within the world. We are to be holy because why? God's holy. And because God's holy, we're to be set apart for God's glory, for him to work in us and through us as he pleases for his glory, and we are to step into his will for us. That's being consecrated. It's not enough just to say, here are the things that I, I hold as truth in my life from the word of God. These are the things that I believe. It's actually that we take the things that we believe and the things that we hold true and we live them out in our lives. That's what God's calling us to do. He wants us not just to have the head knowledge but the heart knowledge and then to, to act upon it. But it's absolutely impossible for us to live the life that God's called us to live in the flesh on our own. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit so we'd be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a consecrated life. You can't do it on your own. It takes all of God in order to produce what God wants to produce in our lives for for his glory. We can't do it. It's just impossible. So we need the Holy Spirit to help us. And as we start to live this consecrated life, our perspective starts to change. There's a transformation that takes place in our lives. We start to see God's word as instruction rather than a list of do's and don'ts. How many times have you heard people say, I don't want to go to church or read the Bible because all it says is tell you what you can't do and what you have to do. Well, I mean, you can have that perspective on everything. You can have that perspective on on the laws of the land. Well, I don't like it that they tell me I have to stop at a stoplight. I just want to go through it. Well, go ahead. See what happens. You know, there, there are uh, things that God puts in our lives as instruction to keep us from harming ourselves. And I'm not just talking about physically, I'm talking about spiritually. And so, we also have this new assessment of what a faith community looks like. We can't, God never created us to go through life on this, this faith journey alone. He's called us to be connected with other people, to do it together. That's why you're all here today. Because you're going like, I can't live life alone. I need to be connected with other people. That's why we have small groups, so that during the middle of the week, you gather together with a group of other people that you absolutely love, and you study God's Word, and you start to say, hey, this is what it means for my life, and this is how I start to live it out. This is how I become a better husband or a better wife. This is what it means to raise my children. This is how I am a better employer or employee. Because God's Word gives us instruction on all, the, all those things. He wants us to encourage each other. He wants us to help one another. He wants us to hold each other accountable, to pray for each other, and to have a deeper understanding of what life with Christ is supposed to be like. That's why we're together. That's why we live a consecrated life. As we step into ministry, we see that the leadership that we have, that God has given to us, is supposed to mirror the leadership that Jesus had had. What was Jesus' leadership? It was servant leadership. He came to, to serve, not to be served. That's the leadership style we're supposed to have in any ministry that we're involved in. We start to understand the nuances of life that Jesus has for us when he's at the center of our lives. We learned that marriage was designed and blessed by God, that our families are a gift from God, and we're to grow that gift. We, we've begun. We've been given the ability to make money, not to hoard it or to keep it for ourselves, but to give that money away to bless other people. We we, we kind of get things backwards. We start to look at things as though they're they're all meant for us. We we've been given all kinds of things in life, and in short, we're to take all of life, all of our thoughts, actions, desires, abilities, skills, and gifts, and consecrate them to God. That that all sounds really good and we would all say amen to that and let's do it. The problem, there's a little wrinkle in all of this. What we know and what we do are two different things. We have a great propensity to separate the God stuff out of our life. Here's what I mean. It boils down to a fundamental issue in our life. We believe that the uh, the illusion is that everything that is going on in my life is for the sole benefit for me to flourish. The message of Jesus and the message that he's given us is that he and we together are to help others flourish. But we don't really want to get involved in something unless it helps me to flourish. We really don't want to know what God wants us to be involved in if it doesn't profit me. The way that we know that these issues that we face are true is we just look at what's going on around us. We have jobs or careers as long as they're good for me. We take a look at marriage. As long as the marriage is meeting my needs and satisfying me, I'll stay engaged in it. My relationships that I have with my friends. As long as it's got benefits for me, I'll participate in the relationships. Everything we have or we look at has kind of been boiled down to this whole idea that it has to benefit me. If Jesus asks me to do something that makes me uncomfortable or I have to give of myself to something else, I don't want any part of it because, you know, it doesn't help me to flourish, Here's here's the problem, is, is that everything that's worthwhile is uphill. You want to grow spiritually? It's an uphill push. You want your marriage to be great? It's uphill. You want your family to be great? It's uphill. You want your relationships to be great? Uphill. Our businesses? Uphill. The ministry you want to be involved in? Uphill. Our spiritual development with Jesus? Uphill. Everything worthwhile is uphill. Our problem is is that we have uphill dreams and downhill habits. We just want it to happen. We just want it to happen by osmosis. We just want to go to bed one night and wake up in the morning and go like, I'm a success. I don't know how it happened. I just woke up this morning and look at me. I've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank. I've got a, a trophy wife. I've got these beautiful kids. I've got the cars in the garage I want. I don't even know how I got this house. It just all happened. Uh No, that's not the way it works. Uh, I, you know, I, I tell young couples when they come into my office and they're getting ready to get married, like Randy and Sarah sitting right here, they're getting married on Saturday. That's awesome, isn't it? You know, Yeah. And I tell these young couples, I say, you want a good marriage, you have to earn it. It doesn't just happen. That's what we're talking about here, is, is that, that these things just don't come our way. Matter of fact, you know, what it is, is that we're absolutely self-centered and self-focused. Some of you are going like, not me. <laughs> I'm not that way. All right, well, let's just put it to the test. So let's, let's just say... We take this group picture, and we hand out the group picture. Who's the first person you look for in the group picture? You know it yourself, right? You're looking at it, and you're going like, I look horrible in this. This is a lousy picture. Let's retake it. Come on, everybody get in here. Let's do it. And then all of a sudden you're going like, never mind. I'll just do a selfie. That's what we do. We look at the picture. We want, it's for ourselves. You know, so we, we've we got this self-centered orientation and it uh, uh, affects all of our approaches in life. It affects our approach in relationships. It affects our approach at work. And it affects our approach with God. And, and what we want to do is we want to keep, God, a part of our life, as long as it's beneficial to me and I flourish in it. But as soon as God asks me to do something uncomfortable or serving others, we don't want God telling us what to do. God, that's not fair. That's not nice. Why are you asking me to do that? Uh, I'm done with that. And so what we do is we end up compartmentalizing the God stuff out of the rest of our life. That's my church. That's my day for church. That's my night for small group stuff. That's the day when I'll do some ministry at the church. But other than that, that's over there. And the rest of my life is over here. Now, here's the, the interesting news on all of this. We're not the only ones that have ever had to deal with this issue. Just read church history. 2,000 years of dealing with people who are self-centered and self-focused throughout the Bible. Now, understand. I want you to understand something I'm saying here as well. I'm not painting all Christ followers with the same brush. We have always had a group of men and women who are absolutely genuine and authentic in their love, their life, their work for Jesus. They've always been that way. They're the ones that we look to and we go like, Oh, I want to be like them. But then we turn around and go like, but it doesn't really benefit me, so maybe I'm not going to be like them. So that's what Paul's dealing with. It really comes down to where do we derive our identity from. And Paul's making this, this point to the church in, in, in uh, Corinthians. And so we're looking at 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. Now, you can turn there in your Bibles, uh, and we'll get to it in a minute. The Corinthians had their identity and their vocation mixed up. They began to think, now that I'm, I have my identity that has been changed as a result of Christ, my vocational calling must change too. But this is, is kind of the essential works base of righteousness. It was works based. And it was being played out on a horizontal level. They're not necessarily seeking to change their behaviors to please God. They were looking to make shifts in their identities to please man. That's what's going on. They've got this whole idea in their head that, that if I make this kind of a move over here and I become a different person in my behavior, more people are going to like and respect me. I might get a, power, a, a place of power and prestige among other people. It was self-focused. Paul's going like, come on now. That's not, that's not the calling God's given to you. There, in this, according to Paul, every Christ follower has two callings. The first calling is a, is a fundamental identity calling, a vertical calling, if you want me to put it that way. And every time the word calling or a form of it shows up in this passage, with one exception in verse 17, It refers to a Christ follower's fundamental identity calling. In other words, God's saving grace. And God's saving grace is spoken as a calling. Jesus has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's the calling that we've had in our lives. We all know that. We all know that that the Bible tells us that even though we found God, we found God because he was calling us. So that no one can boast, no one can say, hey, God was, look, was looking for me. He couldn't find me, but I found him, and he's lucky to have me. That's the wrong idea. Because we know that he loved us first, he called us, he's been calling us by name, and we finally respond to him, and we step into this saving grace, and that's our identity. This identity is the wellspring out of which everything else flows, This is where believers are intended to derive their identity, their fulfillment, their security, comfort, and hope. This call is primarily vertical because it has everything to do with how one relates to God. Do you know what God calls you? God calls you my son, my daughter, my beloved. Did you know that when you get to heaven, if you go back and you read in Revelations, when you get to heaven... God's going to have a little one-on-one conversation with you. Don't get scared. It's not like going to the principal's office. And what he's going to do is he's going to put his arm around you. And he's going to walk with you and he's going to talk with you. And then he is going to give you a special pet name. Just like I do for my little granddaughter. Little P. That's my pet name for her my brothers have a lot of pet names for me and I will not say them out loud. I'm not sure they're pet names, matter of fact. But this is how God thinks about us. This is this this identity that we have and, and he calls us a saint, not a sinner. He calls us righteous, not unrighteous. He calls us loved, deeply cared for. That's this This relationship that we have with him. And then there's the supplemental vocational calling. And it's this horizontal calling. And and, and this calling is mentioned in verse 17. And that's what we're going to look at right now. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This calling that Paul identifies here is not our primary calling. It is our secondary calling. And though there are elements of enjoyment, of excellent contribution to the common good, this is a secondary calling, and it's not designed to function as the source of our identity or our fulfillment or our security. This call is a primarily horizontal call, which God cares deeply about, and it has everything to do with how we relate to others in this world. Martin Luther, the great theologian and reformationist, he said this, that every Christ follower is genuinely bivocational. He is first called through the gospel of faith into Jesus, and he is called to occupy, secondly, a particular station or place in life. I I remember, and I can't remember which, which one of the... Uh, Christian athletes, football players. Someone asked him about being a Christian football player. And he says, no, no, you got it, you got it wrong. I'm a Christ follower first who happens to play football. I, I'm a Christ follower who happens to have the privilege of being a pastor. What's your occupation? You're a Christ follower who does this. That's really what we're talking about here, what Paul's talking about, is that that this second sense of calling embraces all that a Christ follower does in service to our our neighbors, not only in a particular occupation, but also as a member of the church, a citizen, a spouse, a parent, or a child or a worker. Here the Christ follower lives in love towards other human beings and is the instrument by which God does his work in this world. You see, you become, once you have this vertical relationship going with Christ, with God through Christ, you now become the instrument in which God does his work on the horizontal plane, on the horizontal level. These two callings are not related, but they are connected, and only one is instrumental. An individual's Fundamental identity calling, salvation by grace, shape one's supplemental vocational calling, work in the world. It's never the other way around. That's the reason. And and so what's the reason for living as we are called? A vertically derived identity gives a horizontal freedom. Let me say that again. A vertically derived identity gives horizontal freedom. So because I'm now in Christ, I now have freedom this way to go out. So let's look at verses 18 through 20. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts For anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now, a secure identity makes vocational decision-making far simpler. No one needs to fret about work because there's no need for it to provide more than what it can produce. Your work cannot make you something that you're not. This gives hopes to those Who don't love their jobs. You don't love your job. Let me tell you what. Here's where you get your hope. Because our jobs are not designed to define who we are. But this also gives proper foundation for those who do love their jobs. Because our fundamental identity in Christ won't fall apart if we ever lose our job. We're okay. We're going to be fine. Our supplemental vocational call is important, but we do not want this to be the source of fundamental identity and our ultimate hope. Your job should never give you the hope of the world. There's only one person that is the hope of the church, and that's Jesus. And the church, by the way, is the hope of the world because it's through the church that Christ works. Paul's making a case that our external appearance or external stuff is not what identifies us as a Christ follower. It isn't a job. It isn't pious works of righteousness. It isn't where you live or what you drive or what you wear, but really how you live. Paul is addressing two different groups of people in the church when he was talking about this right here. Because there was one group of people that said, Hey, if you've come to Christ and you really want to be a Christ follower, then the markings of being a Christ follower are that you're going to get circumcised. They were the Judaizers because they were living in the Old Testament law. And and the Old Testament, if you were a a child of God, you were circumcised. And then there's the other group that's going like, no, 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 because if you were living under the old law and you were circumcised. You need to know have a reversal on your circumcision. I'm not sure how that works. And it doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But they both have are polarizing this whole thing. I'm not drawing that on the board so don't worry. Okay. But but it's it's this this polarizing thing and what Paul's really telling these people he's going like you've got it all wrong. You've got the wrong idea about what's going on. It's not about externals and how you look or or what markings you have. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with the clothes you wear. It has nothing. All it has to do with is do you follow Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of your faith, and his finished work on the cross for you? That's what it boils down to. Are you going to live as Jesus has called you to live? Now, there are far too many churches today today to say that if you're truly converted, then you're going to have to start changing the way you dress. You can't wear those clothes to church. You're going to have to start covering up your tattoos. I mean, you know, you could get those reversed, but at least cover them up, wear long sleeves, and because we, we don't want to see your sad tattoos. If you have piercings, please take them out. And by the way, if you're going to smoke, go to Wind River Community Church. (laughs) By the way, smoking, you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. Smoking does not send you to hell, it just makes you smell like you've been there. None of those kind of external things are the indicators about your relationship with Jesus. As a matter of fact, Paul says that in verse 20. Each of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now, there's got to be some wisdom in this. All right? Because if if you're a young guy and you're living with your girlfriend, Paul's not saying, it's okay, just keep living that way. No, there's there's this biblical precedent that Paul's not trying to override. He's saying, if you're living with your girlfriend... Either get married right now or move out until you do get married. He's saying to the guy that's stealing or selling drugs, stop it. Go get a good job. Pay your taxes and tie it to the church. He knew he was going to come in there somewhere. It, it's it's you know, this whole thing is is Paul's never going to tell us to do something that contradicts God's word. So we don't don't just throw it all out there and go like, well, you know, I'm doing something really stupid. And because I'm just supposed to say stay the same way as I was when I came to faith. Well, I'm just going to keep doing stupid things. No, don't do stupid things. Find someone smart, spend some time with them, listen to what they say and then do it. That's going to help you a lot. But the truth is is that God doesn't judge on the outward appearance. He judges according to our hearts. Because that's where everything starts. Right? sometimes what we have to do is we have to get our heart and our mind engaged. There are a lot of us that have all this great information stuffed up here in our minds about who God is, what God desires, and what God wants us to do, and that's where it stays. It never makes that 14-inch travel to our hearts because out of the heart is where we start to act on the things that God's asking us to do. I'm not talking about your feelings. Feelings are important. The feelings should never lead you anywhere. You should lead your feelings. If you know something and you start to act on it and it doesn't feel good, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it if God says to do it. What God's saying is you know it, you act on it, and as the longer you do it, the sooner your feelings are going to catch up with you and you'll see that this is what I have for you and what's best for you. We simply need to live our identity in Christ. Let's move on to verses twenty-one through twenty four. Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has called who for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise he who was free when was When called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become a bondservant of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each of you was called, let him there, let him remain with God. Now do you see what Paul's saying here? He's kind of saying like, so you don't like your job? So what? Stay at it. You know, don't get worried about that. But if you can find a better job, go ahead and do that. Now some of you are going like, how do you get that out of here? Because that says bondservant or slave. Okay, so we have this whole different perspective on slavery than what was going on in Paul's time. In Paul's time, when you were a bondservant or a slave or a servant, it, probably 95% of the time, you placed yourself into that position. So let's just say that you went down to Corinth, um, savings and loan, and applied for a loan to buy a house, and they said, your credit really stinks. And you go, ah, nuts. So then you go and find this really wealthy guy, and you go up to him, and you go, look, I really want to buy this house down there on North 2nd, uh, but I, I can't get a loan from the bank. So here's my resume. My job skills are all on there. I will put myself into your service if you give me the money so that I can buy the house for my family and then I'll work for you. And so the guy takes a look at it and he reads it over and he draws up this contract and and he says, this is how much I'm going to loan you. This is what the interest is going to be on the money I'm going to loan you. And now you'll work for me until you pay it off. Now, you don't just pay all the money. You, you earn the money from him, then you pay all the money. You actually have a job with him to where you're taking a large portion of what you're making, paying it back to him, but you're also being able to pay your bills, buy food, and take care of your family. Sounds like a mortgage, doesn't it? Yeah, we're all kind of slaves to that bad boy. So so here's what he's, he's saying is is that so you're stuck with... And, and here's the deal, is that... You can find a really good master to work for. And a lot of times, if the guys found a really good master to work for, they would work for him for the rest of their lives. They'd go like, you treat me fair, you care about my family, you give me vacation pay, uh, you've got a great health and dental plan for me, I'm getting a 401K, this is perfect. I'm going to work for you until you bury me in the dirt. And the guy goes, okay, good deal. So let's make that official. And so then what they do is they take him to the doorpost and they take this little awl and they punch a hole in his ear in the doorpost of the house and and then they put an earring in there and that identifies him as a lifelong bond servant to the master. And it's a relationship of love. Not ownership. So when... When Paul says that you're to be a bondservant of Jesus, that's what he's talking about. It's a, it's a love relationship. But what he's also talking about here is, is that because you're in this relationship with Christ, doesn't give you the freedom now to go like, I got a stinky boss and I hate his guts, and so I'm, I'm just going to walk out the door without giving two weeks' notice, even though I don't have a job. I'm just going to go live off of society. No, you stay at your job. But if you can find a better one, then go ahead and do that. But do it in a way that reflects Jesus well. And he's also saying to the people that already have a good job, and and they've got things, they're a free man, and they've got a great job. He's saying, because you've become a Christ follower, don't become a slacker. You know, here's the deal, is that the Christians should be the best employees out of everybody that walks out and gets a job. And 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 Christ followers should be the best employers. They should take care of their people better than anybody else does. We should work harder than anyone else does. We should make it so that anybody that hires a Christ follower says, you know what? These guys are such hard workers, they give me more than what I'm paying them for that I want to hire more of them. The problem is, is we've got a lot of lot of people that have made a proclamation to be a Christ follower and they've made public declarations that yeah, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus with all my heart, but I'm gonna be your worst employee. I'm gonna come late, I'm gonna leave early. I'm going to take advantage of all the stuff that you have. Matter of fact, I'm going to clock in time that I really didn't work and rip you off. That's called stealing. Well, you need those kind of people need to do one of two things. They either need to step up and say, you know what, I was just kidding. I really don't love Jesus because my life doesn't reflect anything of Jesus. Or they need to change the way they're acting and working. And and if you're an employee, you should have people lining up at your door going like, man, I hear you're the best guy in town to work for. I want to work for you 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 take care of your guys you love on them you help them you, you send them off for counseling when they've got their life messed up you bring them alongside you tell them you set out goals for them and say hey if you can meet these goals we're going to give you a raise we're going to help you out we're going to make sure we can do everything we can to help you get good health insurance and all the rest of that stuff you should be the best employee more people should want to work for you than anybody else but it's not so it's, it's shameful. You know, Paul wrote to the Colossians church about this very thing. And in Colossians 3, here's what he said. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That should put a new perspective on your, your day tomorrow. Tomorrow when you get up to go to work, all right, I'm going to exclude the teachers because they don't go back to work till the 18th. Yeah, I know they're sticking their tongue out. <laughs> but when you go back to work, you should go in and you look at the person who's your direct supervisor, your boss, whoever, and you don't look at them and go like, that guy's a wiener. He's a dork and I hate him. You don't do that. You go like, all right, Jesus, you have me here for a specific purpose, for a specific reason, and maybe it's to help my employer to be a better employer. Maybe it's for my coworkers so that they get a little love and affection. Maybe there's a little something else going on that I don't know about, but you've got me here, so I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to work for you until you move me to a different spot. The truth is is that we should be the best. You may be asking, why should a Christ follower be so different than the others at a place of work or employment? Well, go back to verses 23 and 24 of chapter 7. You were bought with a price. That's it. Jesus shed his blood for you. There's nobody else that's going to do that for you. So don't become a bondservant of men. In other words, Jesus is saying like, Don't go out and work for the man. You go out and work for the king, for the king of kings. So whatever condition each of you is called in, let let that person remain there. Unless you can find a better spot. All right? So how do we live as one who's bought with a price? Our life, is you know, we're to live as though everything we do is a reflection on Jesus. Our identity is now in Christ, not Not just our work or our business, but our homes and the things that we have. All of it belongs to Jesus. And we take a look at it and we say, this only belongs to Jesus. It's not mine. It's mine to steward because Jesus has given it to me. So stay where you are, but be different than you were because you now have God with you going into the place you're at. So how do you live in the identity of Jesus? Well, Jesus brought value to every person he came in contact with. Every person, when he called the 12 disciples to come follow me, he brought value to their life. When he met the woman at the well, whose life was absolutely a a, a train wreck, five husbands and sleeping with a guy, he brought value to her life. When he healed the sick and the lame, he brought sight to the blind, he brought value to their life. When he gathered the little kids around him, He brought value to those children's lives when he went to the to the wedding feast. And he brought wine to it, he brought value to the people that were there when Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross and he was buried and resurrected. He brought value to our lives. That's why we live for Jesus. And, and what he's calling us to do is he's calling us to step up and to bring value to other people's lives. It, you see, because we've got this, this vertical relationship now that brings the value, it pours value into our life every day we're in communion and connection and fellowship with, with our Father through Christ, we get value every single day. And now God wants us to take that value in our station in life and bring it this way to other people. So let me just give you five simple ways to bring value to people. First of all, this is a no-brainer. and You're going to go, duh. But I might as well say it out loud. Because maybe somebody doesn't get it yet. You have to value people. You can't bring value to people that you don't value. So you're, 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 you're to bring value to, to each person that you know. Every person you have contact with is an image bearer of God. So bring value to your family members. Bring value to the people that you work with. Bring value to your employees. Bring value to your neighbor. Bring value to people you don't know. And bring value to people you don't like. It was all good until that last one, right? <clears throat> I know. Bringing value to people is the simplest thing. It can be as simple as doing a kind act for them. I recently heard a story uh, told by John Maxwell. He's an author and a preacher, teacher, and uh, does a lot of teaching on leadership stuff. And he said his grandson... Called him on the phone and said, Papa, I'm going to go bring value to people's lives tomorrow. He's nine years old. And he says to him, he says, well, how are you going to do that? He says, I am going to open doors for people tomorrow. And then, not only that, I'm going to smile at them. And not only that, I'm going to tell them to have a good day. Papa, nine years old. At the end of the next day, he called... His, he, John Maxwell got a phone call from his grandson. He said, Papa, I opened 42 doors today. Nine years old. Every person. Can you imagine a little nine-year-old opening the door and holding it open for you, smiling at you and saying, have a nice day? That would bring immense value into your life. If a nine-year-old can do it, what's keeping us from doing it? Value people. All right, these things are all really simple, but I just want to give them to you so that you've got them. Think of ways to add value to people you will see. You know people that you see on a regular basis, on at work or at recreation or at church or other places. You already have an idea. So start thinking through, how am I going to bring value to this person's life? How am I going to bring value to them? How am I going to value them? How am I going to value them? Think through how you're going to bring value to people before you even get out the door. And then look for ways to add value to others. Take take a look around. Something's going on where you can add value to somebody's life in that day. You, number number 4, go from knowing to doing, from thinking to acting. Number 5, encourage others to add value to those around you and around them. We add values to others because Jesus added value to us. So the one last thing you guys have been waiting for, I know you've been going like, you just put that up there because you're not really going to do anything with it, are you? Can, I'm going to turn it a little bit so can you guys all see. All right. So what I'm going to do to help you understand where we add value and where we draw our identity from is that we're going to, I'm going to have you take out, if you have your pen or your paper or something like that, uh, if you don't have a piece of paper, just draw it on your hand or on your husband's shirt on the back. Uh, I'm sure you can get it out. But we're going to draw, I'm going to draw up here, okay? And I am not an artist, so if I can't draw a really good circle, that's close. This is called an energy pie. Okay. So what this energy pie is going to do is it's going to help you. This is a tool to help you to understand where you're putting your energy and where you derive your identity from. So what are the things that we put on our energy pie? You you know, you you cut a pie into slices. So one is going to be family. One's going to be work. One's going to be recreation. There's going to be a, a God slice. And maybe friends. So what I want you to do on your little energy pie is I want you to, this is a self-evaluation. You have to do this yourself. You have to say, how much time am I putting into, because I might scratch this one out, am I working? pie might look like that this this represents 24 24 hours this little pie so how much time am i putting into work how much time am i putting into to god how much time am i putting into this would be my pie so how much time am i putting into recreation shows how much time into family Because when you look at this, the place where you put your most of your energy, and you might want to argue with me on this, but your pie is going to tell you the truth if you're honest, is wherever you put your most most of your energy and time is the place where you're trying to derive your own identity. Now, uh, uh, listen, you're going like, well, I have to work because I have to get paid in order to take care of my family in order to do those things. That's true. Matter of fact, God said that you should work. God said you should earn a living by the sweat of your brow. But if you work so much time and you spend so much time at work, more than what you need to, more than what you have to, because you want to either prove something to somebody or you want to earn enough money to be really happy and satisfied, if you want to buy more stuff, then what you're saying is, is that my work is going to be what satisfies me. My work is what's going to be my provider. My work is going to be... My God. And then you take a look at all the rest of them. Because this is a big indicator on what's going on in your life. Some of you are wondering, like, why do I never seem to really grow in my in my walk with God? Well, let me ask you the question. Where's your energy sliced with God? You're wondering why your family is a mess. Well, look at mine. I scratched it off. That's because I kicked them all out of the house. So where is it? What is it that's going on here? All right. Let's move on real quick to our reflective questions. First question. Where does your identity derive from? Right here. Where is it coming from, your identity? Do you feel valued by God? Why? Why? Are you adding value to people, or do you want people to add value to you? Are you connecting with people, because we talked about being connecting, or are you correcting people? And the last one, what needs to change in your energy pie? Father, we thank you that you love us and you care for us. That there are things in our life that we kind of get messed up and backwards. We don't get it all in the right place or at the right time. We don't have things straight as they should be. And so we can mess it up pretty bad. And so I pray that your spirit would just really speak to us today and help us to understand that our identity derives from you. And because of that, then we are free to speak into other people's lives, to bring value to other people's life, We're only passing on what we've received from you. Help us to understand that and to live that out. I pray in Jesus' name. We're going to step right into communion.